welcome to Ask the Expert. Today, we have Dr. Michael Haller coming from University of Florida. He is running you know, a well-known program called TrialNet. I'm sure those of you who study type 1 diabetes in the or treated in the clinic are well aware of it. But if not, he's going to um, talk to us a little bit about what it is and um, how you how we can, um, you know, enroll, I guess, more patients and, you know, uh, have more patients access this very important, you know, consortia, I guess. So do you want to give us a quick background, um, a quick bio for yourself, and then a little bit about TrialNet? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, So my name is Mike Haller. I'm a professor in chief of pediatric endocrinology here at the University of Florida, and I'm the um, principal investigator for our TrialNet Clinical Center uh, that includes uh, Florida uh, and Atlanta, uh, Emory, and uh, and Georgia. Um, I grew up here in Gainesville, Florida, and um, uh, my parents were both uh, college students here and stayed in town, so I've I've been fortunate to be here most of my career. Uh, I left to go to college at Duke and then came back for medical school uh, largely because of the incredible type 1 diabetes team here that had already been mentoring me even from the time I was in high school. So uh, uh, Des Schatz and Mark Atkinson, uh, Janet Silverstein and, and others. And so um, they, they brought me back to Gainesville for medical school. Uh, I, I decided I definitely wanted to do uh, pediatrics and, uh, and then focus on diabetes. So did my uh, residency and fellowship here um, and have been on faculty uh, ever since. Um, so when I when I first started working in this field, uh, Dr. Schatz was the the PI for our TrialNet Center, uh, and then uh, during our last uh, renewal, uh, I took the grant over. Um, and so uh, that's my background. My passion is type one diabetes. I'm I'm really uh, uh, I come to work every day to try to improve the lives of people who are living with type one through uh, our research, advocacy, training, um, and clinical care. And so. Um, TrialNet is an NIH-funded consortium um, of uh, centers across the the U.S., and we also have some outreach centers uh, in the U.K. and uh, Australia and Canada, whose primary mission is to develop therapies to ultimately prevent uh, diabetes. Uh, And for a long time, the way we've done that is by really trying to screen family members of patients with type 1 diabetes for uh, type 1 diabetes autoantibodies so that we can identify folks at high risk for type 1 and follow them. Uh, And so we we call that the pathway to prevention study. I used to call it the natural history study. And that is a a major component of what TrialNet does. Can I just ask, uh, for pathway to prevention, how long has that been going? Oh, uh, decades now. Um, uh, Well, uh, I'm not sure exactly the beginning uh, year, but... um, Certainly more than a decade, we've been following patients um, who, who have been found to be antibody positive. Um, and, you know, as the as TrialNet has uh, evolved, we've now started to focus more on doing clinical trials with patients rather than focusing only on screening, because um, obviously just identifying patients alone isn't isn't enough. Um, but, uh, but, uh, we're, you know, we're in this brave new world where we, we now have the first drug, uh, approved by the FDA to p- prevent or delay at least type one diabetes that is teplizumab. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came it's about because win. of trial net efforts. Yes. It's a huge win for the community. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's certainly not the end of the story, but it's a great, uh, start to, uh, immunotherapies being part of what we do to take care of patients. And, and that only happened because of trial net. So the, the trial net, um, 
teplizumab prevention study um, enrolled subjects who had been followed in the natural history study who were very high risk. They had multiple antibodies and dysglycemia, but, but didn't uh, yet have clinical type 1 diabetes or stage 3 diabetes. Um, and they received either placebo or the 14-day infusion uh, of uh, teplizumab. And, you know, the initial data showed uh, that those patients who received active drug had a two-year delay uh, in progressing to stage three diabetes. Uh, and a subsequent analysis showed that the median was actually three years delay. Um, and largely because of those data um, and the patient experiences really related to those, the FDA agreed to give uh, a label uh, to the drug. And so um, that only happened because of uh, uh, physicians were referring their patients to participate in trial net screening and those patients participating um, in follow-up and then, uh, you know, well, being willing to participate in these research studies. Yeah, uh, I would offer, I would also say, I think it also, it had a lot to do with the tenacity of the physician scientists who, you know, really just continued to kind of um, make this a priority and push it forward, um, you know, through the governmental hoops. I mean, I think it was a big lift for everyone involved. And so I think that um, TrialNet and all its uh, associates deserves tremendous accolades. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was you know, no small task to perform a prevention study in this population. Uh, it took many, many years you know, to collect the data. And because prevention studies are powered on uh, events, you have to wait till enough patients, unfortunately, develop type 1 to be able to see if there's significance. So it's not as uh, easy to do in some sense as, uh, as doing studies in, in newly diagnosed patients. Right. Um, but that is also what TrialNet does. So you know, in addition to teplizumab, um, we use uh, the new onset experience as an opportunity to test new agents that we hopefully will then move into the prevention space. Um, so uh, an example of that is uh, the work that we actually started here at the University of Florida, and that then became a major TrialNet study with low-dose anti-thymocyte globulin or thymoglobulin. Um, which is a, a, a polyclonal antibody, so as opposed to a monoclonal antibody like teplizumab, um, is more of a biologic agent that's an FDA-approved drug for kidney transplant and rejection. Um, but we've repurposed it here at a low dose uh, to try and provide it as an immunotherapeutic for uh, for newly type, uh, diagnosed type 1 patients. Uh, and what we found in, in our studies there was that um, low-dose ATG was actually quite uh, effective in preserving C-peptide um, and lowering A1C in, uh, in recently diagnosed patients, uh, so much so that, uh, that we now have moved forward uh, to uh, have a prevention study in TrialNet, uh, quite analogous to the teplizumab effort, uh, where we'll be screening patients who are uh, stage two um, with dysglycemia and high risk, uh, folks who have a, a two year 50% risk of progressing to stage three diabetes will be eligible for this study. Uh, and they'll receive either low-dose ATG, which is a two-day treatment, um, or placebo, uh, and we'll follow those patients similarly to see if if it uh, if it prevents or delays progression to stage three. What's the uh, timeline of that study? So that study is is now open. Uh, we're actually the first site uh, to open here in Gainesville because uh, it's it's our work that uh, generated it, and, and our team was very eager to get open. Um, but other sites around the U.S. are in the process of getting open. Um, you know, we expect that study will take two, three, even four years to enroll, um, but, you know, faster if people continue to promote studies and participating in studies um, and screening, you know, family members for risk. Uh, we hope that the teplizumab experience is going to increase 
the interest in screening because there's now you know uh, FDA approved therapeutics. And so hopefully we'll be able to enroll the study uh, quickly uh, and get an endpoint in you know five to six years as opposed to you know, nine years uh, that it took to get that answer with teplizumab. Yeah. Uh, but that is the big challenge. We, we still don't have um, optimal biomarkers um, or even metabolic endpoints to really be comfortable that a therapeutic is going to have a meaningful endpoint um, earlier in the process. And so uh, it's very challenging uh, for clinician scientists like me to, you know, to talk to families and convince them to be in these studies where, you know, we don't really get an answer for many, many years. Um, but that's what it takes to move the field forward. And we're incredibly um, grateful to the you know, patients and families who, who agree to do that uh, to really uh, help all patients. Yeah, no, that's um, fantastic. So uh, just to reiterate, that study is open now and it's going to be running through when's the last date to participate in that study? Well, the study will be open until it's full. Um, it's it's planned for 144 patients. So we have quite some time until uh, we, we've, we've capped the study. Um, our first screening for the study is actually planned for uh, next week. Uh, so we're just just getting off the ground with it, uh, but exciting times. It'll be really important to see if another agent that's um, similar to teplizumab but has some important differences can also delay or prevent type one. Um, that would be a, a, a major finding for us to then, you know, again continue to develop better therapeutics uh, that are cleaner, safer, easier, uh, and then start to talk about uh, the idea of doing um, induction therapy with the you know, more potent immunotherapeutics like teplizumab or thymoglobulin. Uh, and combining them with um, maintenance therapies that may be more gentle uh, to, to, you know, to the patients, but still provide long-term C-peptide preservation benefits. Yeah, essentially sort of keeping them in remission. That would that would be the goal. You know, so we, we, we have had more uh, strikeouts than, um, than getting on base events in the type 1 space, um, but we are getting on base now at least. You know, we're not, not hitting home runs, and so um, you know, now that we've gotten on base a couple of times with a few agents, uh, the idea is how do we, you know, advance the runner and get people home. And so um, it's a nice to be able to have a conversation about potentially doing um, induction and maintenance therapy as opposed to saying, nope, this therapeutic you know, doesn't work at all. Right. Um, but, but, you know, but because of the work in TrialNet um, and other uh, networks as well, you know, there's now four or five agents that have, have shown some benefit, at least in the new onset space. Um, and Trialnet is actively um, developing studies to, to test those agents now in combination. Um, one example is rituximab and abatacept. Uh, you know, those, those two drugs were shown individually to be beneficial in new onset patients, and, and Trialnet is planning uh, a new onset study that would combine those agents. Um, we, we just recently finished uh, data collection in, in two other prevention studies. We haven't reported the data yet, um, but, but also looking at abatacept. Um, in the in the in the um, uh, prevention space, uh, as well as hydroxychloroquine, uh, yeah. so there's a lot of activity going on in TrialNet, um, both in the you know in the prevention space as well as the new onset space, um, and we're looking forward to developing additional studies here in the in the not too distant future. Um, and then the the other uh, new onset study we have is actually one of TrialNet's first phase one studies. Uh, so that's the study called the Topple study. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a study where uh, we're uh, looking at the safety, uh, really, and feasibility of a DNA plasmid uh, approach uh, to treating uh, the autoimmunity in type 1 diabetes. Uh, 
And so the idea there is that the, the plasmid contains uh, antigens and anti-inflammatory signals that would um, potentially downregulate the uh, autoimmune response. Um, but again, this is our first effort at a phase one study. So it's uh, it's really not designed to look at efficacy, but more uh, more safety and, and some biological signal. Um, and that study is open to patients who've had diabetes um, for as long as four years. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's, there's a much wider, uh, opening for that and it's available at, at most of the major trial net centers. Uh, who's there the, were who's the PI of, on that? I'm sorry. Who's the PI on that study? Um, I actually don't know who the PI of the overall study is, but it's, it's another trial net study. So we all participate in it together. Uh, we right. are offering that study here at the University of Florida and most other trial net centers are offering it as well. Okay. How many trial net studies exist across the U S at, well, just in the U.S., you you mentioned there's some in other how many areas. studies or study centers? Oh, centers. Um, I believe there are 14 centers right now in the U.S. So, um, it, you know, if there's somebody you know who's diagnosed, it's not um, you know near to those centers. How should how do pediatricians? How can the net be widened? I mean, I know that's yeah. an issue, right? To try to really capture. Uh, people that are not maybe affiliated with the center or um, physicians that are, you know, sort of, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, how do, how do you incentivize pediatricians to kind of like um, recruit or get, uh, get patients involved in these studies? Um, is there any kind of outreach happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that TrialNet has done also as it's evolved is uh, develop an online screening portal. And so no matter where you live in the U.S., you can participate in a trial net screening um, effort. Um, any patient or physician can refer their patient to the trialnet.gov website. And there's a big button that says, you know, click here to uh, participate or to be screened. Um, and uh, they fill out a form online and they can be referred to a clinical center who will then send them a kit um, that they can uh, do in a couple different ways. So we actually have a finger stick kit, a capillary collection kit um, that gets sent back to the lab and allows us to do an initial screen for antibodies. Um, and if that is, and that can be done uh, from the comfort of one's own home um, and put back in the mail. Um, and if that shows that there is any signal of an antibody, then the, the patients are recalled and asked to go to the lab and get a, a formal blood draw. Um, the other way our kits work is we now have a, a national contract with Quest uh, Diagnostics, and patients can go to any Quest um, with the TrialNet kit, uh, and they'll be drawn, and the and the kit will then be sent to our core lab for uh, autoantibody testing, and that's all uh, done at no cost to the patients or the physicians. So um, we really, really would encourage folks who are um, you know not close to a TrialNet site or center to um, to let their patients and families know about this opportunity. Um, it is a, a, the easiest way to get high quality autoantibody screening done now. And it's the only way, obviously, to identify folks who are unfortunately at high risk and then get them uh, followed in trial net and find out if they're eligible for one of the um, you know, open or, or soon to be open prevention trials. What percent um, of, um, what percent of uh, those at risk are, is trial net currently capturing, would you say? Just sort of a ballpark. Oh, a tiny portion, unfortunately. So, right. you know, it's, it's all a, a numbers game in terms of a funnel. If, uh, you know, if every single family member of somebody with type one diabetes participated in screening, we would be identifying, um, you know, log fold more patients who would be eligible for our studies. Um, and another thing that we've, we've learned from uh, the natural history study is that, you know, once somebody has type one diabetes related autoantibodies, 
their risk for progression is essentially the same uh, whether they have a family member or not. And so nowadays, it's becoming more common for people to get autoantibody testing done, um, even if they don't have a family history of type 1 or they've got it because their pediatrician had some other concern. Um, those folks are now eligible for trial net screening. Uh, they used to not be. And so uh, for those docs out there who listen, you know, if, if you happen to come across somebody who, who gets autoantibodies for whatever clinical reason, um, and they come back positive, uh, please, uh, whether or not they have a family member, um, you refer them to TrialNet, and we'd be glad to take them. You know, the, the reality is that 90% of the newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes population doesn't have a first-degree family member with type 1. Yeah. Uh, so by definition, you know, we exclude a lot of uh, the people who really uh, ideally should be screened. Uh, it just becomes, um, you know, a yield issue. Uh, when, when we screen first-degree relatives, uh, one in 15 to one in you know, 20 people will be positive uh, as opposed to 0.3% of the general population. Right. Um, and so it just becomes cost prohibitive to offer screening to, to everyone. Well, what uh, do you think about this idea? I've heard a couple, I've heard some physicians talk about this, that, you know, what if it was in, it was um, a test that was implemented as part of well baby check or, you know, your five-year-old check or your 10-year-old check yeah. in the physician's office. I mean, how cost, you know, I mean, it seems like that would not be that uh, expensive to add to the, you know, the, to the typical tests that are done during those time periods. And it could be so impactful if you can identify some of these people, like you said, that are not, they don't have it in the family, and the, but they're, they've expressed one to two antibodies. Yeah, no, that's the exact discussion we're having now. Um, and we're able to have it, you know, before we had agents that were effective in preventing the disease or delaying the disease. Um, people would argue, you know, why screen for something you can't do anything about? Mm -hmm. And the counter argument would have been, well, we, we know very well we can um, reduce DKA events significantly by people participating in screening studies and follow-up studies. But the key is the follow-up as well. And that is expensive. And unfortunately, when you do um, the cost-effectiveness modeling of just preventing DKA, it actually is a hard thing to uh, justify from a pure economics point of view, which of course is very frustrating for her, for doctors and families, but it's the reality of our world. But once you start adding in a potential for delay of disease or modifying disease, it does start to become much more feasible. And of course the cost of screening antibodies has come down significantly. Yeah. Um, and as you, um, you know, increase the scale of this, you get some economy of scale there as well. So um, a number of groups have done this modeling and are starting to suggest that, you know, exactly as you said, um, a general population screen at a wild child exam at age three or six, um, or the combination of two, I should say, uh, you know, would, would capture a great percentage of those folks who are eventually going to develop type one um, and would allow us to identify those folks early. Yeah, so I think that is where more, the field is moving. Know, yeah, and get more information really to illustrate the prodrome, right? I mean, that's very... It's still a, such a um, a kind of uh, foggy landscape that prodrome. Yeah, I think I think we know very well what happens once people have multiple antibodies. Um, yeah. You know, the stage before that, um, and what induces it is is still unfortunately, um, you know, got a lot of holes in it. Uh, we've, we've learned a ton from the Teddy study, the Environmental Determinants of Diabetes in the Young study, yeah. where we followed this genetically high risk population for the last fifteen years. Um, but the reality is, is there's not a single pathway towards type one. It, it looks like it's quite variable for a lot of 
different patients and different populations and different yeah the endotypes. Um, and so some... that you know that makes it challenging to suggest that there's going to be a single therapeutic that's going to work for everybody. And we know that's not true. Even even with teplizumab um, and thymoglobulin, um, there are responders and non-responders. Right. Um, and so but, that's... I mean, I think you can just go back to this whole. You know, if you want to get hopeful, you can go back to the whole landscape of breast cancer and what that looked like, you know, tw even 20 years ago, right? It was like one size fits all. Oh, it's just one type of cancer. But as uh, more data amassed, it became, it was understood that no, there are several, you know, pathways to breast cancer. And we're now we're going to treat it in a personalized medicine fashion. So why not, you know, kind of think about type one diabetes in that same kind of paradigm? Yeah, and I think we are thinking that way. We just don't have all the tools to be able to apply a personalized medicine approach yet. Right. Uh, certainly, we're we're trying to move in that direction. Um, you know, uh, the folks who develop uh, GAD and IAA antibodies early in life are different than the folks who develop, you know, ICA and zinc transporter later in life. Um, different HLA backgrounds, uh, different autoimmune responses, and so um, you know, it's it's only um, logical uh, that those different uh, endotypes would have different responses to different therapeutics. Um, you know, right now we're using um, pretty big hammers uh, that, that are pretty yeah. potent on the immune system globally in terms of T-cell repertoire um, with thymoglobulin and, and, and uh, teplizumab. Um, and we have you know, some of these other agents that are a little bit more discreet perhaps and targeted, but the reality has been that without more of that global approach, the effect has been minimal. Uh, and so you know, figuring out how to personalize that approach is going to be key. And uh, to do that, we need you know, more people to participate in these natural history studies and prevention Absolutely. studies with agents so that we can understand the mechanisms and, and provide people with that uh, personalized approach. But, um, but I think your example is exactly right. I think you know, we're at the, the very beginning uh, of that uh, pathway with teplizumab just getting uh, approved. Uh, and we have a long way to go, but there's there's good reason to be hopeful that we'll continue to make inroads. Uh, Let's um, just shift gears in the last couple of minutes regarding, you know, the, the data that you are collecting, you know, a lot of data has been collected, right, through trial net um, portals. So what, you know, can that be, it, it's been mined, but, um, and then sort of, you know, it was, a, again, sort of remined, Viva Anand and uh, her group um, at uh, MIT, we spoke with her, you know, regarding they went back into Teddy again and pulled out more information. So is is that something that is uh, top of mind for TrialNet is to kind of like using more and more sophisticated tools to kind of go back into some of these studies and and um, have, a, have other looks at um, these data sets? Yeah, and that that is ongoing work. Um, you know, we're we're continuing to do machine learning approaches to try and use the data sets to identify these subpopulations. Uh, I think the hope is, as uh, general population screening becomes more uh, um, uh, robust, and people are getting uh, antibody data out in the real world, they'll be able to basically plug in their information, whether it be glucose or antibody data or age or BMI. Um, and using the totality of the trial net data set, we'll be able to calculate for them more personalized risk scores uh, and ultimately uh, hopefully be able to you know, direct them towards a specific therapy. Um, we're still a good ways away from that, but that uh, the idea of, of at least putting people into risk categories based on that information um, is uh, something that can that can be done and is being done you know, right now. Uh, the more challenging part is we we still don't know which therapeutic that that means they should uh, you know partake in, um, but that will come with time. 
Yeah, have to start somewhere. Um, and if you know, if a, you know, we we had a that last summer we had a conversation with Linda Demelio from Indiana University, uh, you know, IU, and then from David Maz from Stanford. They put out that diabetes uh, docs program, sort of a big call for it's MD PhD sponsored program for those who are interested in type one diabetes to kind of join the charge, right? And um, I know that that program was popular, <clears throat> but in terms of, you know, I guess what you wanna, if there's anything you would like to say to that group of MD PhDs, you know, how might they get more involved <clears throat> in TrialNet if they have interest? You know? Yeah, uh, please come join us. We need young, bright, excited minds, people who want to change the field. Um, there's lots and lots of work and discovery to be done. Um, you know, I, I uh, was fortunate enough to have great mentoring and uh, and start in the diabetes field early in my career uh, and have stayed in it because of that. And I think the type 1 diabetes research family is relatively tight-knit. I know David and Linda well, and I participated in the Diabetes Docs um, uh, program for their, their first round of applicants. Um, and there are some really great people out there who are eager to do this work. So um, I would encourage people, uh, whether they be MDs or MD PhDs, um, who are interested in clinical or translational research to um, to get involved, to find really great mentoring. Um, and if you don't have it at your local institution, you know certainly you can uh, look for it uh, externally now. The Diabetes Docs program was designed to sort of um, democratize access to uh, the K awards that, that used to sort of be very uh, uh, isolated to just a handful of institutions. Uh, so now people can, can have access to K funding uh, almost no matter where they're training. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is it's hard to pull people into the field of, of endocrinology, uh, especially pediatric endocrinology, because, um, you know, we're not a uh, procedure-based uh, um, field and, and the pay is lower than in other fields. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to do it because you love it and you're passionate about it. Um, and I hope that there's still lots of people out there who, uh, who have that passion and who want to do uh, discovery. Um, and, and discovery, you know, laser focused on how we ultimately help patients is what really gets me excited. Um, and we're finally you know, making some inroads there again with uh, the FDA approving teplizumab, um, being able to use thymoglobulin off-label to treat patients, um, you know, and, and more things in the pipeline coming soon. Um, I think we have uh, good reason to offer hope to the patients and families and good reason to encourage young investigators to join us and uh, be part of the solutions. Yeah, I would also just add, it's almost like it's a it's a new frontier with the advent of teplizumab, right? So there's a lot of room for people, scientists and uh, clinicians to uh, make some great advances and really kind of uh, push the field into a new uh, a new place. So it's an exciting times um, from all we've heard um, and today from you as well, you know, that uh, TrialNet is really uh, strong, getting stronger. And um, it's a place uh, that, you know, it's very uh, interesting place to be at this time. Indeed it is. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah. Thanks again for uh, chatting with us. And I hope, uh, you know, many uh, young trainees and early uh, stage MD PhDs and MDs PhDs get a, a listen to this and, and get it inspired. Amen. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Bye-bye.